Like a backstage pass to the world of fly fishing travel, this is Waypoints, the podcast of destination angling. News and events, helpful travel tips, destination profiles, great stories, and expert advice from some of the most seasoned and experienced names in fishing travel. Waypoints is brought to you by Yellow Dog Fly Fishing Adventures, the industry's number one specialty travel company for the very best insider knowledge, logistical support, and trip preparation. Freshwater or saltwater, international or domestic, Yellow Dog has you covered for your next fishing adventure. And now, your Waypoints host, Yellow Dog founder and director, Jim Klug. Of all the conversations we have with Yellow Dog clients about gear and equipment, fly lines generate more questions and at times confusion than anything else. Fly lines are perhaps the least understood component of an angler's setup. And when it comes to visiting and fishing a new destination, there is a high degree of confusion and uncertainty when it comes to matching the right tapers and line options to a specific destination, fishery, or species. For some time, we've wanted to do an episode that is totally dedicated to questions and facts about fly lines, talking about the basics of line design and answering some of the common questions about selection, line care, and how to properly match a line with a certain rod and reel setup. Without question, the most overlooked piece of equipment in a traveling angler's pre-trip kit, fly lines are crucial for success on the water. The piece that really brings everything together when it comes to proper casting and presentation, as well as fighting and landing fish. To tackle this important subject and help explain the science behind fly line design and manufacturing, I'm joined today by two experts on the subject, Bruce Richards and Josh Jenkins of Scientific Anglers. Josh currently serves as the Research and Development Manager at Scientific Anglers. He is responsible for new product development, which includes new fly line technology and fly line tapers. All of SA's lines are made in the company's Michigan factory, where Josh also works on innovating and optimizing the company's manufacturing processes to ensure high quality and consistent fly line products. Our second guest, Bruce Richards, is an absolute legend in the world of fly lines and line design. With a 34-year career at Scientific Anglers and roles that included production supervisor, sales coordinator, production plant manager, product development and engineer, and designer. In more than three decades with Scientific Anglers, Bruce developed almost every single fly line introduced by the company, and he arguably knows more about designing and manufacturing fly lines than anyone alive. Over the years, Bruce has been incredibly active with Trout Unlimited, AFTA, and with the Federation of Fly Fishers, helping to establish and lead the Federation's Casting Instructor Certification Program. A past recipient of Fly Rod and Reel Magazine's Angler of the Year, Bruce literally wrote the book on fly lines, and in fact, he authored the book Modern Fly Lines for Lefty Craze Collection. Gentlemen, thanks so much for being here, and welcome to the show. Thanks, Jim. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Jim. I'm, uh, I'm excited about this one. Well, it's been a long time coming, as I was saying. We get so many questions about fly lines. And and let me let me start with this simple question to the two of you. Uh, and I asked this after years of dealing with this subject with traveling anglers going all over the world. Why is it that fly lines are so often overlooked when people are putting together their setups? Everybody goes and, you know, they buy the latest rods. They spend a lot of money on reels. They get really excited about all the kind of, you know, sexy, hard, good toys. And then fly lines so often are an afterthought or something they don't put as much thought into. Why, why do you guys think that is? Well, if I was going to answer, I would say because they're not sexy enough. 
They're not fly rods that are shiny and expensive and cool, and they aren't fly reels that are gorgeous pieces of crafted metal. Fly line is just a string, and therefore it gets forgotten a lot of the time. But such a key component. And, and Josh, you know, we were talking about this earlier, but a, a good example is like a sports car, right? You get a, a high-end performance car, but then you put the wrong tires on the vehicle and you're not going to get the most out of that vehicle. We were talking about the same thing with, you know, spending like $10,000 on a new rifle and not putting the right ammunition in it. It's just not going to perform. And I think you could arguably say the same thing about a, a, a really high-end fly rod that isn't matched up with the right fly line. Yeah. And I think, you know, there's a lot of anglers too, that, uh, they get kind of pulled into like Bruce said, you know, the sexiness of a rod and reel. And for a lot of applications, especially in fresh water, you know, you're, you're probably better suited to taking a hundred dollars off of your fly reel spend and putting it towards a better fly line. Yeah. Because I mean, without that component, it doesn't matter what you spend on that rod and reel. It is just not going to end up being the balanced outfit and, and delivering on the level that, that you, you hope it will. Yeah. Well, I, I think it would be helpful for our listeners if we start off with, with kind of some, some basic facts about fly lines, a little bit of fly line 101, let's call it. And, you know, believe it or not, we, we have kind of put these questions together, um, oftentimes based on the most Googled questions about fly lines. You can actually check this out and like 10 pop up, but some of these topics may seem a bit basic. Um, but the reality is that a lot of anglers really don't understand the basics of fly line construction, design, tapers, application, or even care. And, you know, people that work in the industry or maybe work at a fly shop and, s- and sell fly lines on a daily basis, they, they sometimes forget that, that these basics aren't necessarily understood by everybody. So I thought we'd, we'd start off and Josh, I'll, I'll pose the first question to you. Give us the quick rundown of, of basically how fly lines are made. Sure. Yeah. So um, pretty much all modern fly lines that I'm aware of, um, even outside of SA, start with a core and the core member is what gives the, the fly line its ultimate strength. Um, the, the piece of the fly line that you interact with the coating um, that you touch and feel doesn't really have much inherent strength. So you have to have something inside that gives it um, a little bit more, that gives it gives it strength to hold up to a fishing application. Um, basically, if your fly line was comprised of just coating, uh, it probably wouldn't even hold up to, you know, fighting a trout or a bass or something like that. So uh, we start with the core. At SA, we use a couple different varieties and uh, those varieties are selected ultimately based on the, the application. Um, and typically the temperature in which the, the line is designed to be fished. Um, we take that, that core, which is level, so there's no taper to the core. We run it through a primer, which uh, helps the coating adhere to it. And then that primed core goes into our plastic mix. Um, and essentially kind of goes into this, this open vat of this uh, liquid plastic. And then we have a dye that wipes off the excess and sets the taper. And then it immediately goes into an oven and the oven cures that liquid plastic on the outside. And that's how you sort of get the hard finish that you have on your flat line. Um, once it comes out of the machine, you know, we can do a bunch of different other stuff to it. We can put a, a printed ID on it. So it's easier to identify. Uh, we can put welded loops on it, et cetera. Um, but a basic fly line is, is three components. It's a core, a primer, and a coating. 
Well, and by the way, the uh, identification printing on the fly lines might be the greatest thing we've seen in the last couple of decades, especially when you're traveling with a lot of lines, you now have the ability to take a quick look at it and, and, and realize what it is. So that's one of my favorites. But Bruce, let me ask you this. A lot of people don't understand what it is that makes a floating fly line, which is you know probably still the vast majority of fly lines out there. What is it that makes a floating fly line float? What makes it buoyant? Well, you have to make them lighter than water. It'd be less dense than water. <clears throat> the materials that lines are made of primarily are nylon and PVC. Nylon's a little heavier. P- PVC is a little heavier than water. So you have to do something to reduce the density. And uh, at SA, in most places, we mix in some hollow glass micro balloons. They're very tiny. They feel and look almost like talcum powder, but they're if you look at them under the microscope, they're obviously little balloons, glass-walled balloons. And you mix a bunch of those into the coating, and that makes it less dense. And you can control the density about however you want. But once you get below one, you start having lines that float. And uh, the more you put in, the higher they float, but also the bigger the diameter. They become more wind resistant. People say, well, why don't you make them float better? Well, we could make them float better, but then they wouldn't cast as well because they'd be big and soft and like a marshmallow. You don't want that. But that's how you do floating lines is you mix a low-density filler into the coating that reduces the density of the finished line, and it sits on top of the water. Well, there, there's quite a bit that goes into the construction of these lines. It, it seems like, again, so, you know, something very simple that, that you, you think about as the last component to your setup, but, but perhaps the, uh, the most involved when it comes to these different processes. Yeah. Well, let me ask you this. Um, Bruce, you know, we, we throw out the, the term taper a lot when talking about fly lines. And again, everybody assumes that like, oh, everyone just knows what a taper is. But explain what this term actually refers to and, and why it matters in line differentiation. Sure. Well, when we cast, you know, we form a loop and the line flows through the air and all that. And the physics behind all of that is kind of complicated and very interesting. But what it boils down to is you want a line that travels through the air the way you want it to in a way that's controllable. But then when you get to the front taper where the leader attaches, that's responsible for dissipating energy of the cast. And if you make a taper that's really long and with really fine tip, then you dissipate a lot of mass over a long distance. That dissipates a lot of energy. But if you make a line with a short taper and a really large diameter tip, it doesn't dissipate much energy at all. So the one with the long fine taper is really good for delicate dry flies and little stuff in calm days. But if you need to throw a big fly on a windy day, and you want it to turn over with authority, then you need a line with a shorter, stouter, more powerful taper. And then beyond that, you got the belly length, which controls how much line you can actually carry in the rear taper, and it gets complicated. But what's the most important part, and most of the time, is the front taper, because that determines how it actually delivers the fly. And it's also going to match up to specific applications. Uh, it's going to, you know, different conditions, weather conditions, distances, all of these things. I mean, the taper right. is what you want to dial in. Well, and yes, and it also really keys on the fly too. Yeah. And, and, and because you can't, you know, you, you can't throw a big heavy fly with a line that dissipates a lot of energy because there's not enough energy left to turn over the fly. So, you know, it, it keys around that. Well, and it used to be that the choices for fly lines were pretty basic. I mean, you'd walk into a fly shop and you could, you know, select from a weight forward line or you could go with a double taper. And, you know, back in the day, that was kind of it. And now today with with all of these great advances and technologies and new designs, there are endless options, tapers that are specific to species, different coatings for water temps, you know, all sorts of different sink rates. 
How does someone find the line that works best for, for where they're fishing? How do they begin the conversation of kind of narrowing down which taper um, they want to start with? And I know that's a, a tough question to answer. I'll start with you, Bruce. And then Josh, <laughs> I, I want to ask you about this too, but uh, give us your thoughts on and kind of where do you start as a, yeah. as a fly angler? Well, first, those days you talked about where it was weight forward and double taper and all that, we call those the good old days <laughs> because it got really complicated after that. <clears throat> but it, it's actually pretty simple. When you go to a catalog and you look and there's a thousand different fly lines, you say, how am I ever going to pick? But, you know, when you when you start narrowing it down, it happens real quick. Say you're trout fishing, that narrows it down to, you know, like 50 fly lines instead of a thousand. So it's really not that complicated. But two main things, what flies are you going to be throwing? Is it streamers? big hoppers, tiny dry flies that in, once you determine that, that narrows it down to, you know, maybe five lines each, if that, and then you start looking at some other important things. And probably the most important is caster skill, because some of the lines are really well designed to throw tiny dry flies and delicate and do all that stuff, but they're hard to use if the caster doesn't cast very well, or if it's windy or, you know, so just because that's the perfect line for the application in the right hands, it doesn't mean it's the right line for any particular angler casting skill plays a huge role in this yeah and and also you know the setup that you're using because they're all going to be a little different and and josh i mean you know you could pick up 30 different fly rods and they're they're all going to kind of get the job done but they're all going to behave a little differently and and talk a little bit about kind of trying to match up the right taper or line based on your setup yeah and i think um you know i would maybe even back into that question a little bit differently and, and bruce had kind of alluded to this um you know we get a lot of questions from consumers about uh you know i just i just bought this rod you know what line should i put on it and that's kind of the in my mind and bruce can correct me if i'm wrong in my <laughs> mind that's sort of the wrong way to, to come at this i um, agree you should really come at it in in an application sense um the rod doesn't really matter you know it I mean, it matters in a sense that you want to match up the weight, but what really matters is what fly do you want to throw and how able are you to cast? Um, what is your casting ability? And that should determine more the fly line. And then once you kind of get the fly line figured out, then you can go back to your rod and say, okay, you know, I need to get this, this uh, weight or I need to get this amount of overweightedness in my fly line. Um, I think too often consumers start with the rod and then assume that they can come to scientific anglers and say, you know, I got, I bought this rod. I need the perfect match. When in reality, we need to know more about the flies that you want to throw and the conditions that you're in than the rod that you just bought. No, that's a really good point. And uh, we're, we're actually going to talk a little bit later about that. We're going to throw out some hypothetical scenarios on different situations, different fisheries, and talk a little bit about, um, you know, matching up the right line for those situations. But Josh, let me keep going with you. And let me ask you this. How long do fly lines typically last? And if I'm an angler, and I know there's a lot of answers on that, but you know, if, if I'm an angler and I'm doing a, a modest amount of traveling and I'm getting out on the water fairly often, how often should I think about replacing my fly line? Uh, the, the simple answer is when you start having issues. Um, it's going to be most, notice, most noticeable probably on floating fly lines, um, and it'll manifest itself in that line sinking. 
generally speaking, that happens when you start getting cracks developed in the coating and it allows water to wick inside the core, which sort of changes the overall density of the fly line and begins to sink. Um, you know, I, there's no one answer, uh, one be all end all for how long a fly line is supposed to last. But, you know, generally what I tell consumers is if you're not noticing any issues, you know, if it doesn't feel sticky or it's it's not sinking when it's supposed to float, then um, keep using it until it does one of those things. Well, on that same subject, uh, and Bruce, I'll throw this back to you. How should you clean and care for a fly line? And how can anglers make their lines last longer? And, and I guess another way to put that is like, what what is it that kills a fly line and to the point where it's, it's no longer really serviceable? Yeah. <clears throat> well, one of the things that really kills them, <clears throat> excuse me, is when they get dirty, they get sticky in the guides. And when that happens, when you cast, especially for hauling, it tends to stretch the surface of the line. There's a lot of friction against the guides, so it stretches, and that can lead to cracking a lot earlier. So for, for that reason, you really need to keep lines clean so they last longer. But also, the, the surface of a fly line is a very high-tech thing. It's, it's got a lot of different chemicals on the surface that reduce the friction, and it keep the lines nice and flexible. And if those get covered up, then you not only have more friction, but you also lose the hydrophobic nature because the line surface is very hydrophobic. Like when you freshly wax your car and you sprinkle water on it, beads up real nice, and that's very hydrophobic. Well, the line's the same way, except when the line is hydrophobic, it's pushed higher in the surface tension, and so it floats real high. When they get dirty, they float lower. So you can feel it in friction. You also notice they don't float as well. If you keep them clean, then everything works. So you can either use just soap and water, hand soap on a, on, on a washcloth, scrub it down and then rinse it off. Or uh, SA makes really good line cleaning pads or a little micro abrasive. They do a great job of cleaning the dirt off. They're really quick. You can just put one in your vest or pack. And uh, But keeping lines clean is, is really key. Well, Josh, let me go back to you on this. Um, for traveling anglers, especially if, if they're in the salt or they're, you know, somewhere where the water is a little tannic or dirtier, um, what can traveling anglers do to properly take care of their fly lines, i.e. store them the proper way after a trip, something that will end up prolonging the life of those lines? Sure, that's a great question. Um, you know, being that they're made of uh, fairly inert plastic, you don't really have to worry about mildew or mold. Um, so there's not really that many concerns about storage of a fly line per se, um, keeping them out of UV as much as possible. You know, obviously when you're fishing it, that's impossible, but if you're not fishing it, you know, keeping it out of, um, keeping it out of sunlight and keeping it in a relatively temperature controlled environment will help. Um, but then also, you know, if, if you're fishing somewhere particularly, uh, that has really dirty water, um, you know, I think about like, you know, tailwaters out West that have all kinds of scum and stuff in it. Um, just making sure that that line stays clean, like Bruce said, um, especially, you know, cleaning it before you store it just so that dirt doesn't have time to sort of set in. No, that's, that's great. And, and again, that's a question we get a lot. And, and so, you know, when you get back from that trip, don't take your, your reel with your line on there and set it up on the windowsill in direct sunlight until you use it a year later. Not what you want to do. So, Josh, let me ask you this. You, you can, you know, still today find fly lines that might be 20 or 30 bucks, right, on in some website or, or mail or catalog. Or you can spend upwards of, you know, 120 to $150 for a line. We get a question a lot, you know, are these expensive fly lines worth it? And what's the difference that you're paying for? 
Sure. Well, uh, I'm going to have a little bit of an, a biased opinion here. <laughs> so <laughs> take it for what it's worth. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I, I think it's absolutely worth it. You know, um, you guys were talking about the good old days when you had uh, a limited number of taper options. And it's true, you know, that's that's sort of ballooned out of control. But um, one other aspect that it's changed in the fly line industry is that tapers are no longer really a, a that much of a differentiation between fly line manufacturers, right? It's easy to, to take a measuring device and, and reverse engineer a taper or figure out something and create something that's, you know, does does the same uh, delivery in the same application. Um, and so one way that we try to differentiate ourselves at Scientific Anglers is just by the amount of technology that we pack into the coding of our fly lines. And the amount of technology that you have in a line is going to directly correlate to the price. So, you know, the more expensive fly line you buy, the more technology it's going to have, the slicker it's going to be, the longer it's going to last, you know, the better it's going to fish in your situation. Well, speaking of technology, and this has a lot of applications for, for big fish and saltwater fish. Um, it used to be that when you, you bought a fly line, you know, the end was just, you know, kind of cut off. And then you would, you know, rig up a nail knot or, or something that would allow you to attach your butt section and then your leader. Well, now the industry standard has become that a lot of uh, almost every fly line now comes with a welded loop on the end of most fly lines. And you know, when people are headed out for big fish, if they're going, you know, after GTs or big tarpon, uh, big jungle fish, we get a lot of questions from anglers say, hey, you know, will that loop hold? Is that welded loop strong enough? Um, I mean, obviously you guys make them, so you have a lot of confidence in it, but let's talk a little bit about the welded loop setup. And Bruce, let's start with you and kind of your thoughts on the evolution of the welded loop and, and how it performs for for big, nasty, angry fish. Yeah, well, they're, they're really strong. They're <laughs> You know, like any connection, whether you use a nail knot or a braided loop or a, you know all the connections we use, any of them will give out, any of them will fail eventually, any connection. So you can't look at that and say, well, this is good, we're good forever. You got to keep checking them because eventually all the, they all will fail. But when you buy a new line, I trust those loops. Um, I mean, I was around when we first started making loops. We weren't the first to make loops, but we didn't like the loops that were out there initially and we didn't just copy something we didn't like, we found a better way. And uh, actually loops on heavy duty lines like that are the easy ones because they can be big and they can be kind of clunky. It doesn't really matter. The hard ones to make them make a really nice loop on a three weight that delivers nicely. Uh, that's what, Now they don't have to be as strong, but uh, it's harder to make a, a small compact light loop than it is a big heavy one. So I trust them completely, but I do check them. Well, aside from being a, a fly line guru, Bruce, you're also uh, an incredible caster. Um, what's your thoughts on, on loops with the performance of the casting and kind of laying out that presentation? Well, you know, all of this that we're talking about with lines is really dependent on caster skill. Yeah. And the better the caster, the less important a lot of this stuff becomes because the caster can adjust to whatever. And Joss's comment about rods earlier, say, well, I got this so-and-so rod, what should I get? Well, like you said, it doesn't really matter. The caster is the one who determines how the rod works. And it's just a minor adjustment to your stroke to go from a fast rod to a slower rod to a longer or shorter. So that's kind of out of the question. But the line, you can't, you can control how it works to some degree with your stroke, but you can't, you can't make a powerful line deliver delicately and you can't make a, you know, a three-way trout line throw a bass bug. The physics are against us. But 
the better the caster is, and that means getting the line real nice and straight and knowing how to control the stroke and making a nice low wind resistance loop is just opens up the world of fly casting and fly fishing. You know, it, it doesn't matter what topic we're talking about on this podcast. Every single discussion we have always comes back to practicing mm-hmm. and becoming more proficient as a caster, yep. no matter what, what the subject is. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Josh, um, is there, are you guys doing any fly lines these days that don't have that welded loop on it? Uh, some, yeah, very few that now though, um, to your point, I, I mean, there's some, uh, like European style nymphing lines that we do that are just too small a diameter to weld. Um, but I'll, I'll echo some of Bruce's statements in that, um, the way that we QC test loops is we do a, a handshake loop, you know, like a loop to loop knot with a perfection loop and we pull test this thing. And the determination of a, a good loop versus a bad loop is that a good loop with a handshake connection should always break in the fly line before the loop itself breaks. So theoretically, uh, you know, if it passes QC, the the loop itself is going to be stronger than the majority of the fly line. Um one question that, that we get a lot, I'm sure it comes across your desk a lot too, Jim, is uh, what is the core strength of the fly line? Um, we get, you know, anglers all the time that ask, uh, you know, what's how strong is your tarpon line? And let's say, you know, the tarpon line has a core strength that's 35 pounds and the consumer will come back and say, um, well, that's not going to work. You know, I'm using straight 50 pound fluorocarbon or, or something like that. Um, one thing that that anglers often overlook is that because a fly line is, is sort of an integrated system without any knots, the, the brake strength that we give you and the brake strength that you experience is actually the true brake strength of the line. In contrast to that, anything that you attach um, via leader or just straight tippet is going to have a knot in it. And that knot is going to weaken the system. So even if I had, you know, a straight 50 pound fluorocarbon, uh, leader or tippet attached to the end of my fly line because it has a perfection loop or because it has a no slip mono or, or some other knot in it, it's going to break significantly lower than the advertised strength on the spool that you bought. Yeah, that's a really good point. And we, and we do get that question a lot about core strength. And of course it's really applicable when you're going after the, the big nasties, you know, the GTs or Arapaima or things that in a lot of ways have no business being caught on a fly <laughs> rod yet. We're, we still love going out and doing it. Um, but it's, it's not just the, the, the pull strength of, of the fish you're connected to. A lot of times it's the environment, right? You know, if, if you're in the Indian ocean, you're dealing with coral heads and things you can get hung up on very common in saltwater. If it's in the jungle, you know, it's down trees and snags and all kinds of things. So that certainly is where the strength factors in as well. So Josh, let me ask you this. Um, and, and I know Bruce has got an opinion on this, so I'm going to save the, <laughs> save him for a second on this one, but don't get um, it wrong, Josh. <laughs> The question of overloading fly rods, Um, you know, are there times when you want to do it? Is it a good idea, a bad idea? Should it even be necessary? And and I guess that's a whole conversation for the rod manufacturers, but um, does it make sense? And if so, when? Sure. Well, uh, I've been trained by the best in the industry and in, in Bruce to uh, <laughs> respond to this question. And sometimes I feel like a, a little bit like a politician just kind of reverberating what somebody wrote for me. But uh, I, I agree. Yeah, I think Bruce would say the same thing. You know, the issue is that um, in today's fly fishing age, we have what we call fast action rods. And, uh, you know, what is a fast action rod other than relabeling, you know, a six weight as a five weight? You know, that may not be 100 percent true. But the, the core of the issue is that in fly lines, 
the way we determine the size of a fly line is is very cut and dry. It's black and white, right? I, I throw this thing on a scale and it either weighs the correct amount or it doesn't. And in fly rod design, there's a lot more gray area and a lot more feel to it. And what that can lead to essentially is, is rods that are uh, fast action in nature um, that you know, 80% of consumers can't cast correctly uh, with a true-to-weight fly line. And this kind of gets back to the practice thing. You know, unless you're a very experienced caster, you're not going to have that great of a time trying to throw a, a true-to-weight fly line on a, a truly fast action rod. And so as a reaction to this industry trend, fly line manufacturers like SA started creating oversized fly lines to ensure that we don't get blamed for a $900 fly line not performing correctly. Um, that being said, you know, I, I do think that modern rods have a larger window of, of operation, um, meaning that, you know, they're not going to they're not going to collapse if you throw a larger line weight on it. You know, they can handle a range of weights um, by its nature. You know, if you think about taking a five weight fly rod, it has to be able to cast a fly line at 20 feet and it has to be able to cast a fly line at 60 feet. And the amount of fly line you have outside that rod tip is going to determine the weight. And that's actually a pretty big variation right there, just in different casting distances. Um, get back to your original question, you know, where is a overweighted line appropriate? Um, beginners are certainly going to benefit from overweighted line. It's going to slow down the action of the rod and, and make the timing a little bit less critical of uh, your casting stroke. If you wanted to be able to throw a larger fly on a smaller rod, um, you know, certainly that would be an application. Bass comes to mind, um, you know, peacock bass, certainly if you want to throw like a, a big hair bug or something like that on a, on a smaller rod. Um, and then the, the final one, which is always to, for me, I, I, I take one on travel um, is just for conditions. You know, if I went on a, a destination trip and I end up showing up and there's 30 mile per hour winds for the four days that I'm going to be out fishing, I, I would rather not struggle with a light line and I would rather, you know, be able to enjoy my fishing and, and throw an overweighted line to, to handle the wind or whatever conditions, you know, might be thrown at you. Oh, those are all really good points. Uh, Bruce, what would you add to that? Well, I think the easiest way to think about it is this. I've got a, a favorite medium fast nine foot five weight rod that I fish all the time here in Montana. And if I'm going to go dry fly fish with that, I put a standard weight, you know, true to true to weight, five weight on it, and I go fish, and it's wonderful. It's light, it's crisp, it casts well, throws all the dry flies great. But if conditions change, and now I want to throw a double limp rig and an indicator, that line doesn't handle it very well. The rod's more than capable, but the line is not up to the task. So I'll put a I'll put a six weight on, or even a six and a half, a half size heavy six weight with a little more powerful front taper. Now the rod is slowed down a little bit. It opens my loops a little, which is good because I don't want to get a bunch of tangles. It carries the extra weight and the indicator just fine, and it fishes great with that heavier line. But then if things change again and I want to fish a streamer, I'm going to put a 7-weight on it in a streamer, and that same 5-weight rod is now a medium, medium slow 7-weight, which is great for streamers, and it works just fine. So in reality, what I think is the rod makers should explain that so the line makers could go back to making lines standard weight, and then you just change the line weight. Rather than now, we have all these five-weight lines. Some of them are actually sevens, and some are, you know, it's, it's just you never know unless you do the research to find out. So it's, 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 it's a lot simpler than it seems, but different applications 
do require different weight lines to be to work effectively. Well, which is an argument for having multiple fly lines, you know, with you in your kit. And especially if you're doing any kind of destination angling and, and Josh, to your point, I mean, you get down to the, the salt and you're, you know, you're doing a typical flats trip. You got your eight weights, you got your nine weights, but you might have those, those calm days where a delicate presentation uh, is, is super key. And you might have days where it's, you know, pumping 25 or 30 and it, it makes sense to, to bring multiple lines with you so you can adjust, you know, to the conditions and what each day throws at. Yeah, I think that's a great point that you brought up. Yeah, I've, I mean, as a, a, a practical example, I've had it happen to me in the Keys. You know, I went tarpon fishing and showed up on my last day, and I think it was like 15 mile per hour winds. And if I would have stuck with my uh, half size heavy fly line, I think I would have missed every shot that I had. I ended up switching over to a, a full weight heavy and and was able to make it work for the day. So it's 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 vital to have at least a few options, especially on trips like that. Well, let's, let me ask you guys this, and, and this is a good one for Bruce, because about 25 years ago, we saw an explosion in kind of these new technologies of the textured fly lines. SA came out with shark skin. Um, you started seeing some other companies come out with the, you know, the ridge line type fly lines. Talk to us a little bit about the difference between textured fly lines and non-textured. What do people know, and, and what are the applications for each? Well, that was a really exciting time, because you know, advancements in fly lines have been fairly incremental. There haven't been, you know, major game-changing changes. We've changed the chemistry every year a little bit, and they get a little bit better, but rarely is there something major that you can say, wow, this is huge. I mean, AST was a big thing. That was the permanently slick and all that. But but I think texturing was even a bigger thing uh, that SA patented, and uh, it was an exciting time to put that in the plant. But what we ended up with was a line that was mechanically slick, not just chemically slick, but both mechanically and chemically. And if you're counting on a mechanical surface, whether it's dirty or it's hot or it's cold, it doesn't really matter. They still shoot. They still haul. So they made it very uh, user-friendly. Rather than having to clean and worry about all the stuff, they just always work. Now, they make some noise, and people don't like it, and the early ones are a little hard on the fingers. You know, there's always a negative, with, but, but Josh and everybody have pretty much engineered any of the negatives out of those. I just think texturing is the best thing to come along in fly lines in a long time. And, and it was a lot, I mean, the conversations back in those early years of textured lines is, you know, to compare it to like a golf ball, right? The, mm-hmm. the surface of a golf ball where it's dimpled. Yeah, but that's... Golf balls are dimpled for wind resistance, mm-hmm. and and we actually tried to find that there was an advantage to that early on. And I had a professor friend at University of Michigan develop a test to determine whether there was less wind resistance, and he said no, the texture's too small; it doesn't work. The dimples on a golf ball have to be a certain size, for it okay. to work. That makes sense. And so we didn't get that, but we got the reduction in friction in the guides, which was huge, and also it made the lines dramatically more durable. Because lines typically fail when they crack. And when you put all these textures in the line, it made the line more flexible. It flexed, and no longer did you have the stretching of the surface that caused the coating to crack. So durability just went up like five times overnight when we started texturing. 
And Josh, now you guys have, have kind of evolved from the, the early years of the shark skin. Now you do, you know, like for instance, with the, the scientific anglers amplitude lines, you do a textured version and you do a smooth version. Talk to us about the applications and, and the differences in those. Sure. Well, the, the main difference between um, when texturing was originally introduced at SA and now is that we've uh, the first texture, um, and Bruce, you'll have to correct me again if I'm wrong here, um, was shark skin. And we used to use that texture on the, the complete length of the fly line. And shark skin, which we've uh, since rebranded as, as floating texture, um, same texture, just a different name. Uh, it was more aggressive. And um, what we learned through the process of, of introducing these products is that on the areas of the line, that are going to be constantly in contact with your fingers. We wanted a, a less aggressive version of that texturing, which is where the, the mastery texture, um, which is now called shooting texture came into play. And that's the one that's more akin to uh, dimples on a golf ball. So uh, I would say, you know, now we have a, a lot better refinement on those textures to make sure that they perform properly, but also that they're not um, eating into your fingers. Really the only negative now that I can, picture is uh if you don't really like the sound of it going in out of the guides you know it does definitely sort of reverberate and make a noise um i personally see that as as an advantage i I have direct on audible cue to my line speed um inside my guides that i didn't have before um but you know it's it's kind of a it's personal preference um, which is why you know to your point we offer uh textured versions and smooth versions on our our top top end premium lines um just based on consumer preference basically well i i can tell you from my personal experience and the recommendations i make on almost a daily basis and you know for saltwater applications the the amplitude lines that you guys have have been the biggest game changer i've ever seen i mean there is nothing i would rather use and it's something i tell all of our traveling clients about because it is just day and night difference than so many of the other options that are out there in the salt so it's uh, it's pretty impressive no doubt about it um Bruce, let me ask you this, and I, I want to go back to what we uh, talked about in the very beginning about what makes a fly line float. Um, of course, you know, floating lines are the majority of lines that people use in, in a lot of places, but you also have sink tip lines, full sink lines. Give us the, the quick rundown of how you take a fly line and make it sink and, and then adjust it to the different water columns where, where you want to be kind of in the game with your flies. Sure. Well, just as we add a low-density filler to coatings when we want them to float, we add a high-density filling or filler to the lines when we want them to sink. And the majority of the time, that's pulverized tungsten. It's tungsten powder. It's very dense. It's very expensive. Um, and it, uh, depending on how much you put in, the line can sink slow or it can sink extremely fast. Um, we lose some control over color because tungsten powder is pretty much black and it's hard to pigment something that's black into something else. But fortunately, most sinking lines are best if they're dark colored anyway. Um, for sinking tip lines, we use the same, but if you want it to sink really slowly, if we add no fillers whatsoever, no, no glass beads and no tungsten, the PVC coating we use is actually clear. When, when we add a pigment to it and a filler, then they become opaque in a certain color. But if we don't add anything, uh, any of those things to it, then the coating is clear. And if you build that line on a clear monofilament core, you got a clear core and a clear coating, and that's how we get the slow sinking, clear, you know, lines that we either make as full sink or uh, or sinking tips, which are so popular in in a lot of saltwater applications. So it's just a matter of what you add to the coating, 
to change the density, the color, um, and so on. Well, and that's a great, great segue to this question. Um, and we get this all the time for people headed to New Zealand, if they're, you know, going to the, the railroad ranch or the Henry's Fork, you know, technical, tough, picky fish. In your opinion, and Josh, I'll start with you. Does the color of the fly line matter in, in no, different places? Oh, boy, here we go. Here we go. Right? <laughs> you, know, you, know, you know everyone's dying to, to get your opinion on this. Uh, in my opinion, no. But there is there's a caveat of having a correct leader set up. Um, I think that the the real issue is that the fish sees your fly line at all not that you know when they see that fly line is it bright orange or is it sort of a muted color i i know great anglers that use uh solely bright orange fly lines and they could probably outfish me on any given day even you know dry fly fishing in, in a technical fishery to me the biggest issue is making sure that you have your leader set up correctly and you have sufficient distance between your fly and your fly line and then beyond that, the color of the line doesn't really matter. Um, other than, you know, I think it is definitely a lot easier to uh, control your cast and control your loops and keep an eye on your back cast with a brighter colored line. So um, in that regard, I think there's actually some some advantage there. But if you think about um, something floating on the surface of of a river or a lake, um, especially with light attenuation, you know, the, the further down the water column you get, the, the less colors are visible. Most fly lines, regardless of color, if you're under the water looking up at them on the surface, are going to look brown or, or black even. It's going to look like a shadow. Um, even if it was orange, it's going to be very, very subdued versus what you're seeing um, being outside of the water. So in short, no, I don't, I don't think from a fish perspective, I don't think fly line color matters that much. I think it's more critical to ensure that you have a long enough leader um, and the correct size leader and tippet and fly. Um, and then I do actually think that there's a slight advantage um, in having a brighter colored fly line just from the angler's perspective of being able to keep an eye on your cast and control things. Really good points. Yeah, I was hoping for a fight, but we're not going to get it. I agree entirely. <laughs> Years, <clears throat> excuse me, I've been asked that question, I can't tell you how many times over the decades. And and I always said, well, we build, you know, we build lines in subdued colors and all that. And, and most of them are. <clears throat> and then people say, well, if that doesn't really matter, you know, why don't you make more bright colored lines? And they say, if the fish don't care. And I always say, well, fish don't have any money. <laughs> <laughs> and we're not selling them to fish or selling them to you. And you think it should be dark or you think it should be olive or you think, and, you know, we gave up trying to convince people that bright lines anglers just want to buy lines that they think will, you know, work the way they work. And, but I agree with Josh entirely. Yep, I fished orange lines point. forever. <laughs> and yeah, it's, you know, we could make them, we could try to force the issue, but people want subdued colored lines. Well, it's like, it's like fly design these days. I mean, a lot of times you look at a fly sitting in the bin and it's, it's sexy as hell. And it's like, well, it might not catch the fish, but it's going to catch yeah, the angler. Exactly. Yeah, they, they love that. So. It is still a business. <laughs> well, let's pivot a little bit. And, and Bruce, I'm going to start with you on this one. Let's talk a little bit about the evolution of fly lines. And I know we could talk for hours about this, but, but give me your opinion and kind of your perspective on what's changed over the years and, and what some of the biggest improvements and in innovations uh, are that we've seen over the last 20 years or so. 20 years. Well, I already talked about texturing. <clears throat> that was big. Um, a lot of the changes that happened, well, actually the biggest ones happened before that. And, and I have to say when I first started 
at SA in 1976, which is a long time ago now, I guess. But uh, all the lines were made using a mechanical cam on the machine that determined the the taper. And, and it, it, it controlled the taper of every line on that machine. Machines make multiple lines. And uh, it was the cams were big and they were heavy and they were expensive. And it took two months to get a new one. And then if it wasn't what you wanted, you're, you're stuck. But anyway, we computerized all the machines so you could do individual dies, change any parameter on any line at any time. And that was the biggest thing. That kind of led to an explosion of tapers. And then, you know, in the early 90s, the movie came along and demand went way up. And the more people you have, the more variety you can support. And so then all of a sudden there's way too many fly lines. But, you know, if they don't sell, they go away. But um, the, the biggest things were, for me were texturing and greatly improved coating chemistry because that allows the lines to, to shoot and haul really well and to last longer, and to float higher, and all the things that anglers always said they wanted. I mean, when I started, we were dealing with, you know, lines cracked fairly early, and didn't float very well, and blah, blah, and all these things. And so we started working on curing all of those issues. And eventually we did. I mean, lines last, I'd guess, 10 or 15 times longer now than they did back then, to the point that when I left SA years ago, uh, rarely was dealing with any cracked lines or anything like that. You know, the, the number of complaints went down dramatically as they got better and better. So my goal was always to have somebody want to buy a new fly line rather than have to buy a new fly line. You want them to want the new shiny thing, uh, even though the old one is still working. It's the same with cars and golf clubs and <laughs> shotguns and everything else. But you don't want somebody to be dissatisfied because the product failed because they may change brands. So the better you make them, the more product loyalty you get, and that's good for any product. Well, Josh, let me kind of pose that same question to you about, about innovations, but in a little different way. Um, so let's say you take the average angler. They fish a couple times a year, and they went into their local fly shop, and they bought a, a, a trout line, let's say, that right now is probably 10 or 12 years old. And it, you know, it hasn't cracked. It's still in decent shape. It doesn't get fished that much. But can they take that line that's 10 or 12 years old and compare it to, say, a new line that's available right now in their favorite retailer? Um, can the average angler really tell the difference on those lines with, you know, through innovations and, and, and new designs? Uh, that's a great question. Um, you know, and it, it, like Bruce said, all the developments um, really since texturing have been largely uh, incremental um, just because it's it's determined on the chemistry of the coating and um, you know, like many things, development of those are, are incremental. There's not very often that you come across, you know, a huge leap in technology like that. Um, you know, if you had a, a 10, 10 or 15 year old fly line and you were trying to compare it to a, a brand new one off the shelf, I think uh, you would absolutely be able to tell a difference. Um, it may not be solely because of the technology it might just be because of the fact that um you know the coating even if you're not using it the you know plastic has sort of a, a lifespan to it right it'll age over time so with a really old line you'll notice that it probably starts to get hard it'll get cracked um, it'll develop more memory um so you know even technology aside i think that you would absolutely be able to tell a difference between an old line and a new line if I were to, if I were able to, to go back in time and, you know, pull a, a brand new line from 10 years ago and compare it to a, a brand new line today, I think that you would also still be able to tell a difference, um, especially comparing 
a smooth line to a textured line. I think that's probably still probably one of the biggest differentiators that we have as a company um, at Scientific Anglers. Well, I know that, you know, when I've got a big trip coming up or, or you know, a, a pretty major adventure, there's nothing that I do quicker than just replace my fly lines. And I'm a little bit of a diva about that, but I just think there's something about a fresh new fly line. Heaven. Heaven, right? It's, it's as good as it gets. And you know what? It's it's, it's true. hundred bucks. It's hundred twenty bucks. It's and true. you think about all the money you spend on the trip, all the money you've spent on all of your other hard gear. It's like it's it's one of the easiest kind of pieces of low hanging fruit to to just replace and and make sure it's perfect because uh, there's nothing like casting a new fly line, nothing at all. Well, Bruce, let me ask you about this. Um, we talked about all the advancements and and the evolution of fly lines over the last couple decades. Are we done with the evolution lines? I mean, have we kind of, are they as good as they can get? Uh, is, is there a next level or new innovations coming that, that we see out there on the horizon that can really significantly improve performance and, and how people cast and how they present flies? Well, that's a good question. And Josh is going to have to weigh in more than, more than I will. But I just remember sometime back in the early 1900s, I remember reading about them talking about closing the patent office because all everything had been invented. <laughs> and, and obviously that was not entirely right. But, you know, I'm not involved in the front lines of that anymore, but I guarantee you there are big advances coming. I don't know what they are. Josh probably does. He's not going to tell us, I'm sure. <laughs> but, but, you know, I, that was always something I struggled with when I was doing the job Josh has was, you know, coming up with that next thing. And, you know, you get a hint of an idea or somebody sends you something and you know, eventually something triggers something and you end up with improvements. And, uh, and I'm sure that's still going on. See how much Josh will tell us. <laughs> uh yeah let me let me preface this by saying uh if my boss is listening that there is absolutely more developments to be had in fly line <laughs> eminent, technology eminent they're coming <laughs> big ones <laughs> brad if you're listening to this uh no worries um yeah you know it's uh it's an interesting question i think um you know fly lines today are are excellent if i had a pie in the sky you know if i could wave a, a magic wand and um you know, correct issues with fly lines that even I see um, with our products, I would say there's there's still some fruit left on the tree there. Um, and, you know, especially in the plastics industry, um, from not only from technology, but sustainability standpoint, um, there's a lot of development happening even outside of the fly fishing industry that we can take advantage of. So I'm always looking for, for things like that. But yeah, uh, especially within the, the next few years, I think you can expect some, some changes coming along the fly lines. Well, I'll, I'll give you one that, that I think you should implement on your saltwater lines. If you can somehow design these lines that, that automatically prevent trout sets while you're on the flats, <laughs> that would be a game changer for a lot of anglers, I think. Yeah. Yep. Well, let me ask you guys this. Is, is there a resource um, that, that you can recommend that really helps match anglers and their fishing destinations to the right lines and tapers? Because I know, again, we've, we've talked about, well, it depends on the ability of the caster. It depends on the rod. It depends on you know where they're fishing. But a lot of times, if and, and we're going to play a game here in just a second where we're going to get into the details of this, but um, some general resources that can, can help identify the right lines and tapers for the right applications. I can tell you, we get this question all the time. Our, our sales staff spends a lot of time talking um, to, to destination anglers that are heading out on a trip. You know, they, they know their gear and 
and they can make recommendations. But there's a lot of DIY anglers. There's a lot of people that are heading out somewhere for the first time that I, I guarantee you they're constantly confused when it comes to finding the right line or taper or application. Um, any resources that you can recommend? Boy, that's a tough one, isn't it, Josh? <laughs> I mean, I'd love to just give you my phone number, but <laughs> don't do that. I don't think I have time. <laughs> Your wife wouldn't appreciate that, Bruce. Yeah. yeah, I think I think uh, my best answer. I'll give a, a shout out to our um, customer service department. Yeah, um, you know, we have a, a world class customer service department. There's there's three guys at SA, and it's kind of their job to answer these questions. There's a lot of consumers that don't realize that you can email scientific anglers directly with questions like this. And I, I guarantee that, you know, if, if you wanted to talk about a, a destination trip and what fly line would be best, that's probably one of the better conversations that they're going to have in a day. And if they yep. can't figure it out for you, um, they'll forward it to me and I'll usually figure it out. 99% of the time, you know, they've ha had the question before and they can they can answer it right off the bat. Um, I don't have it in front of me. I think the email the email should be on our website, but I believe it's customer support at scientificanglers.com. And that's probably the, the absolute best resource. Um, if you have a, a application specific question regarding fly line leader or tippet. Um, and then we also have, we're working on building it out, but we also have sort of a repertoire of videos on um, YouTube that go over some of these topics as well. So, yeah, you know, I would also throw a shout out to a lot of the specialty shops out there. You know, if you have a good fly shop that, that you frequent um, and, you know, they really know their stuff, you know, certainly they'll, they'll probably know their fishery in their own backyard, but a lot of fly shops today have gotten really savvy on, on destinations and, you know, some far off places. So don't be afraid to utilize that specialty retailer because that's what these guys do best is, is talk gear. Well, if yep. you're, if you're fishing with a guide and the guide understands, and you know, the guide ask the guide, you know, what lines are working best for people now is still dependent on angler skill. And that's, you know, that's always, that's the hard part of answering these questions is, you know, we often don't know. I, I used to just say, well, how far can you cast? And if you get an honest answer, that would tell me something. If they say, well, you know, 40 feet, but it's kind of ugly. I, then I know exactly which way to lead them. Well, that, that, uh, brings us to our next <laughs> section. And, and I know you're going to introduce that caveat on all of these things that I yeah. ask you because it's key. I mean, it really it, does it depend is. on the angler, but I, I want to do a bit of a, a location and species rundown with you guys. And, and what I want to do, and, and I know this is a little bit difficult, but I'm going to name some destinations. I'm going to tell you a little bit about kind of the species, the type of water, and you guys tell me your recommendations for some specific lines. And, and Bruce, you may say, well, this is the, the type of line I think would be applicable for that, that given situation. And Josh, you may say, well, here's the actual specific model of line that I think you should, should think about. But, um, this is again, with a caveat being, it's going to depend on the angler and the skill level. Let me run through a few different scenarios and get your guys' opinions. And, and you mentioned this a second ago, Josh, we'll start with, with an easy one, tarpon fishing in the keys, call it late spring, early summer time frame. Uh, what's your go-to line? Sure. Well, uh, we do have one line that's called the tarpon, actually, and it's uh, sort of an older taper um, by today's standards, maybe a little bit light. Um, so if I were fishing in the back um, to laid up fish, especially if I had some you know, wind block, if I was back in mangroves, uh, tarpon line would be great for that. That's definitely going to be more of a caster's line. So you want to have um, some experience casting, especially to tarpon um, if you're going to go that route. 
And then uh, as you go from there, you know, my recommendations are just going to kind of get heavier and heavier. From that one, you can go to Infinity Salt, which is a half size heavy. Um, it's going to be more general purpose, but still leaning towards your um, maybe mid to advanced angler. Uh, Infinity Salt also has the longest head length of any saltwater line we have. So it's going to allow you to stretch out your cast a little bit further and be more accurate at distance. And then uh, by far our most popular saltwater taper, and this would um, be applicable to a couple other questions that you have, is uh, the Grand Slam, which is three quarters size heavy, uh, sort of a general purpose head length. Um, that's a great one for beginners or for, you know, larger, heavier flies. Um, for whatever reason, you had to throw a, you know, weighted tarpon fly. I can't really think of a situation, but if, if you had a, a large tarpon fly or a weighted one, um, bumping up to that three quarter size heavy Grand Slam is going to be a good choice. The heavier ones are better for bad conditions too. Yeah. Dealing right. with the wind that's so often a visibility factor. is low and you can't see very far. So all the casts are relatively short because you can't see long. <laughs> it's windy, boats rocking, short, heavy head. Okay. Next scenario, Amazon region. We're down for peacock bass. Um, a lot of top water stuff, but of course some subsurface structure and bank fishing with some big streamers. Yep. So this this is actually kind of one that we're a point that we haven't talked about, but it's worth mentioning. Um, the, the composition of the fly line is going to sort of determine the ideal temperature that it was designed to be fished in. And uh, speaking in generalities, when you're fishing somewhere with high heat, um, you know, the Amazon would be a, a good example. Um, certainly the Keys or sort of, you know, Belize or anything like that. You want a line that has a, a harder coating and a stiffer core and that means basically that it's going to stay slicker in the heat and that it's not going to get too limp to where it's uh, constantly tangling on you um, so to get around to your question um, for an application like that uh, we have a, a tropical jungle series of lines that are uh, based on our titan taper which is actually two sizes heavy um, it's our most overweighted line taper um, but sort of justified when you're throwing large flies for peacock bass etc so within that, we have a, a tropical titan, which is a floater. We have a tropical titan clear tip, which has an intermediate clear tip that I, th I think is around 12 to 15 feet. And then if you need to get down fast, we have what we call the tropical custom cut, which has a uh, intermediate running line, uh, a short section of sink three, and then a sink six head. And um, you can cut that to length. Basically, the more you cut back, the, the lighter weight you make the line to, to match to your rod. Um, and that one would be useful if you needed to get down. But all, all three of those lines have our harder tropical coating and our, our stiffer tropical core, uh, which is designed specifically for environments like the Amazon. Yeah, I'm really glad you brought that up because I've had so many conversations over the years with people where they, you know, talk about, oh, I just went out and bought a new nine weight. I couldn't be more excited. And I got the latest reel. And, you know, I've, I've got this uh, this striper line that I've had for years, and I'm just going to throw that on this setup and head to the Bahamas. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, it's going to be like casting a piece of wet spaghetti if you don't factor in the temperature of, of where you're fishing. So I'm glad you brought that up. All right, Bruce, here's one for you, because I know you're, you're at... Railroad Ranch? Yeah, let's, let's talk about it. I mean, yeah, we, we mentioned it earlier, but you're, all, you're oh, on the Henry's Fork, and the you, fish are you. tough. <laughs> yeah, well, the Railroad Ranch is classic big Spring Creek stuff. It's wide open, gets windy sometimes, but if you get there at the right time, you got big, long slicks and uh, big selective rising fish. <clears throat> and I really prefer a line like, uh, like the Mastery Standard or the Infinity Trout. They're, they're standard weight. 
they have long heads. You, so if somebody can carry a long line, you can do that. They're, the more you can carry, unless you shoot, the more accurate they'll be. So for the right caster, they're they're ideal. They're delicate, so you can throw a little dries. <clears throat> but if you know, if I was going to recommend you know to an intermediate going down there, I probably wouldn't suggest that. I'd probably suggest an MPX, half size heavy, a little more powerful. You don't need the power, but if you don't cast great, you need that to be able to turn over. If it gets windy, you can still make it work. Back to the caster skill thing, but. Um, yeah, I like lines with longer heads. I can mend long, carry longer, more accurate at distance. And uh, sometimes you need to make those <clears throat> those casts there. And even if you don't, then they just fish like a normal weight forward or even a double taper at 30, 40 feet. All right, Josh, back to the salt. Uh, permit fishing, calm conditions, sight fishing in a place like Ascension Bay or, say, Southern Belize. Okay. Uh, well, permit fishing is another good example of, um, you know, how do you back into this question? Um, because generally speaking, you know, if, if I were going to go down to Belize and I knew that I was only going to be permit fishing, you're kind of relinquishing yourself to using probably heavier flies, uh, right? You know, you're going to have more dumbbell eyes than you would say if you were sprinkling in some bone fishing in the mix. Uh, and generally speaking with a heavier fly, you're going to want a, a more aggressive taper. And so, uh, you know, we have, we have some anglers that really like the infinity salt for, um, permit fishing because of the longer head length, but, uh, a beginner caster, or especially if there's some wind to deal with, uh, they would benefit more from throwing the, the grand slam. Um, that little bit of extra overweightedness is just going to help with that heavier fly, um, and any adverse conditions that you might encounter. All right, here's a good one for you, Bruce. And we can break this down into single-handed and double-handed, but Sea Run Browns in Tierra del Fuego on the Rio Grande. You're, you're pretty much swinging nymphs and streamers for these big browns, and oftentimes the wind is nuking down there. Yeah. <clears throat> well, that's tough. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for that one. <laughs> if Well, in the heavy wind, you're pretty much stuck with going with something that's got a relatively short head, and uh, relatively powerful because no matter how good the caster of it is really cooking you're not carrying a lot of line you just can't do it so you'd want a relatively short head um, especially for single hand for two hand it's going to most likely be some sort of skagit style spay short head with a sinking tip attached but the high wind pretty much and you can't if the wind was always from the perfect direction then you could kind of go longer but you can't count on that. You're, the wind's going to be in the wrong place. So you're stuck with short and heavy and, um, you know, for either single or double hand. And so, Josh, what lines would those be for you? That's a good question. I've, I've never been there personally, but I've heard stories of, uh, you know, like if you if you park your car in the wrong direction, the, the wind will rip off the doors. So you always <laughs> have to park with your headlights facing into the wind. So you're keeping keeping that potential in mind, I would say um, probably something along the lines of the Titan taper um, for a single hand rod would be uh, a a pretty good choice. I certainly, I wouldn't go down there without something like that. Again, that's sort of like the two size heavy. Nice thing about the the Titan taper too, is that we have it available in a a bunch of different densities. Um, So it's available in like saltwater coatings, um, tropical coatings, like I'd mentioned for peacock bass, but we also have it for, 
freshwater fishing scenarios in um, floating sink tips of various densities and then even uh, full sink in different densities. So the nice thing there is if you like that specific taper, um, you can expect the same delivery across a wide range of, of sink rates if you need to you know, fish different areas of the water column. Um, Bruce is, I, I think, spot on with the space setup. You know, generally speaking, I, my understanding is that they're not throwing huge flies. You know, you may be throwing like larger Prince nymphs or something like that. So uh, you don't really need a skagit for the fly size per se, but the shorter the head and the more compact the mass, the easier it's going to be able to cast in the wind. So a skagit line would probably be my recommendation there as well. And it can get a little windy down there, no doubt about it. All right, so um, we talked about tarpon fishing. We talked about permit fishing. How about your first trip to the Bahamas, uh, going primarily for bonefish, mostly skinny water-type flats, a lot of wade fishing. What's your go-to line for general bonefishing conditions? Well, if it was me, I'd go with the bonefish taper. I love that line. It was designed specifically for that, shallow water, clear water, bonefishing relatively long head relatively long front taper bonefish flies aren't big and heavy and uh, it's a casters it's a casters game and that's a casters line but if conditions got bad or the caster wasn't maybe quite there yet something like the grand slam will be easier for them to use and if it got windy for me i'd I'd switch to that too or the uh, infinity salt that's another great line yeah anything to add to that josh no, I think that's that's spot on. Spot on. Um, you know, yep. I mean, especially with bone fishing. I mean, uh, permit fishing as well. You know, it's you, there is kind of a, a minimum requirement of skill there to make it work. So I think you can assume that generally an angler doing that is going to be a better caster. So, you know, bone fish line would be great um, if you don't feel comfortable with that line or um, wind starts to pick up. Infinity Salt or Grand Slam would be another good option. But, you know, we touched on that a minute ago, and I, I think this is a great point, is that, you know, if you're going down to the salt, and, and I know we keep returning to that, but we've got a lot of listeners that do a lot of saltwater fishing, you know, there may not be one line for, say, that eight weight or that nine weight that's going to fit all these conditions. So bringing multiple lines can make such a difference as the conditions change down there. And I think that's a huge takeaway for a lot of people is, you know, there is no one size fits all for every conceivable you know, scenario. I think that's key. All right, here's here's another one. We'll we'll go a little exotic again. How about time and fishing in Mongolia? Um, you know, big explosive takes, strong, powerful fish. What's the go-to line for Mongolia? Um, I would probably go back to the Titan recommendation there again, especially since you're going to be typically throwing larger streamers um, and possibly pretty air-resistant topwater flies. Um, most of the guys that I've, I've personally known that have gone, I've sent with Titans and, and they said it worked quite well. Um, I did have one friend who went and, uh, was determined to catch one on two handed rod. Um, and so I sent him with this gadget that there are, there are definite limitations with a two handed setup and the fly size that you can throw. I think he made it work, but it's not as easy to throw a really large streamer with a, with a space setup that, in comparison to, you know, a single hand rod. Yeah. So. A 12 inch groundhog. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, Bruce, here's one. We talked about technical fishing on a place like the, the Henry's fork. How about 
rainbow fishing in Bristol Bay, where it might be, you know, a uh, time of year where you're, you know, fishing beads or you might be fishing flesh or streamers. It might be short cast to fish that you're, you're, you're spotting and you're, you know, kind of putting it right in front of their face, or you might just be covering a lot of water. Um, what, what's your thoughts for Alaska fishing rainbow trout? Well, for something like that, uh, I mean, barring, you know, really huge flies, uh, but if somebody's fishing maybe a six or seven weight, something like that, I'd just go with an MPX. It's a half-size heavy, relatively powered, powerful general purpose um, trout line in essence, and that's what that fishing is. If that wasn't enough, then then you need to move up to a Titan or something like that. But that's overkill for a lot of that. But, you know, a 7 or even an 8 weight with an MPX is a pretty deadly outfit for that kind of fishing. Yeah, anything to add to that, Josh? Uh, I would maybe just add there's a, there is sort of one intermediate step between NPX and Titan um, in uh, what we call the Anadro taper. And the Anadro oh, yeah. is sort of a, a dedicated indicator fishing line. Um, it's, I believe, uh, I should know this off the top of my head, I think it's a size and a half heavy, maybe one size heavy, um, somewhere around there. It's sort of halfway in between an NPX and a Titan, um, but it has a, a very short, aggressive front taper um, with a, a long head. And that longer head length is going to um, allow you to mend um, easier at distance, especially with an indicator. So if you were running into a scenario where, you know, you needed to fish a bead under an indicator or, you know, even if you're floating a flesh fly under an indicator, um, that would probably be my choice. Um, you could do some streamer fishing with it, certainly as well, if you needed to. Um, but, you know, if a majority of my stuff was going to be with an indicator or was heavier nymphs, um, I'd maybe start leaning towards the Anadro. How about carp fishing? Let's say carp fishing in Colorado. What's the go-to line? <laughs> well, that's pretty general purpose. <clears throat> general purpose stuff. The flies aren't usually real big. I'd go back to the MPX. I did a lot of carp fishing in Lake Michigan and when I lived in Michigan, and that was, that was the go-to line there, usually a seven weight or maybe an eight, and that'll handle all the flies very well, cast long, cast short. Um, carp fishing doesn't require anything real special, just a general purpose Weight forward like the MPX is perfect for me. So, Josh, we don't have a carp taper coming out anytime <laughs> soon. We did. Uh, <laughs> we did, yeah. we did. I made them. You yep. made them. Yep. Gotcha. How we about? For, oh, go ahead. Sorry. sorry. Uh, no, I, I was just going to mention. Um, you know, one other thing there too is uh, the temperature. Um, you know, like like Bruce had mentioned, when we're fishing the Great Lakes, generally it's pretty early in the spring, so a freshwater line um, is pretty easy to get away with. If I were carp fishing in you know arizona or something like that in the summer i would maybe start considering getting into a tropical line just because it will behave a little bit better um so the taper the taper is one aspect there but you also may want to consider the temperature crossover because you know you can fish carp in environments that are, are fairly warm as well well you yeah. know and and uh, a good one that kind of uh relates to that how about red fishing in louisiana now you go there at certain times of the year and it's hot as can be but you go down there you know chasing those big bulls in december or january things can get a little cold out there what are your thoughts for red fishing lines well we we actually have uh we have a redfish line and it comes in uh two varieties a, a redfish warm and a redfish cold so <laughs> there you depending go. <laughs> on what time of year you're down there you can you can select the appropriate one um 
the the redfish cold generally is available in, in larger line weights because you're going to be throwing to larger um, bull reds. And then we have a, a tropical redfish line that would, uh, it's a very, there's some crossover in the line weight availability, but it's generally smaller sizes that are going to be better for, um, you know, if you're in like Biscayne Bay or something like that in, in Florida when it's truly hot. So uh, redfish taper in general is going to be a good option. And then just kind of determining, you know, what time of year you want to, fish for them to figure out which version you need yeah well my next one i was going to say steelhead in bc but that that's like a whole different podcast we're not even going to touch oh. that one <laughs> we can there's talk no for way we hours. can get that one right that's right yeah and, and, and you want to outrage a bunch of people those guys yeah, no let's skip guys. that one we'll skip steelhead in bc that's it's too big of a, a topic there how about this one bruce how about gt fishing in the indian ocean oh i've never done it but it's going to be one of the big heavy ones again it's um, it, Josh, you still got a hundred pound test core line. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. That's the one I would use. <laughs> yeah. Because, you know, not only again, are we dealing with, with the gangsters of the flats, you know, and they're just, they just fight so dirty over yeah. there, but they're, I mean, the, the coral heads and the obstructions that those GTs are really good at finding. You yeah. got to have one that, that doesn't just have the, the pull capacity on what you're hooked into, but that can handle the environment. Right. Well, and right. The, the, the line, wh- which line is it, Josh, that has the, the heavy core. Yeah. So, uh, what we call it the BWT big water taper. Yeah. Um, so any, anything with that the one. BWT name has, has a hundred pound core. Um, but it, it's exactly like you said, Jim, um, I think if you, if you put most anglers on a, a fly rod and a fly line and you attach them to a scale, they would be surprised at how little pressure they put on fish. So no one is, no one that I'm aware of is actually putting a hundred pounds of pressure on a fish. The reason we build those lines is for abrasion resistance. So you have a little bit of extra security if that fish decides to go off a coral head or, you know, it's rubbing against something on the bottom of the, of the, of the flat or you know, whatever. Um, so it's, it's mainly there as an insurance policy against abrasion. So the BWT would be my suggestion. Yep. Yeah, that, that is so key over there because I'll tell you, if, there, if there's a species that is good at wrecking your equipment, it's GTs. They know how to do it, and they, they're very good at it, for sure. Sure. <laughs> well, well, we'll bring it back home for this last one, and Bruce, I'll throw this one back to you because um, a lot of our listeners, this is their, you know, their, their bread and butter, and that's uh, small stream fishing. Call it a high mountain stream, you know, six-inch to 10-inch trout um, covering a lot of water. What's yeah. your go-to? Well, any of the trout tapers, they're designed for trout. They're designed to be light and delicate. They're standard weight. They're not extra heavy. They've got a, a light front end. That's what all that fishing is, is, dropping little dry flies or a little nymph behind a rock. And uh, that's the ideal. Although, you know, if somebody's a line like an MPX, since a lot of the casting is short, going a half size heavy, if you're short, throwing short all the time, or somebody could just go up a line size. If you've got a favorite four weight, and you're fishing it all at 20 to 30 feet, you could put a five-weight line on it, and it would work well for all that short-distance stuff. So, you know, being real light and delicate is nice, but you also need some weight to load the rod and make it cast right. So, you know, going a half-size heavier, up-a-line size with a delicate taper is another really good option. Yeah, especially if a lot of your casts are, you know, 15 to 25 feet. Yep, yep. Yeah, helping to load that rod. Josh, anything to add to that last one? Uh, we do have one newer line that came out, um, I guess a year ago that we call the Creek trout. And, oh, that's right. I um, forgot about that one. 
Yep, it's it's exactly what Bruce had described. Um, it's a short head that's overweighted, so you can um, it's, it ensures basically that you're properly loading your rod at distances shorter than 30 feet. Um, but it's also a rear weighted head um, with a essentially the whole length of the head is front taper. Um, so it still de- it delivers fairly delicately. But what that allows you to do is uh, roll cast. So if I were fishing in a scenario on a, on a small creek where I knew I wasn't going to be casting very far and I knew especially that I was going to have um, a lot of you know, debris or, or bushes behind me and I needed a roll cast or single hand spay. Um, a good portion of the day that the creek trout would be a, a pretty good option. Good. Well, I, I know we could, you know, throw out another hundred or so scenarios and keep going down this list, but I think we covered some good bases. And as you said a moment ago, Josh, I mean, there are some resources out there. Uh, we certainly try to provide them with our clients, but as you said, the customer service team at, at SA can help with a lot of this. And, uh, you know, it just reiterates the fact that, you know, think about what type of caster you are, what your skill set is, how accomplished you are, and then also the application for which you're you're using these fly lines. It's so important. And there are a lot of choices out there. There's no doubt about it. Well, as we wrap things up, let me guys let me ask you guys this, and, and this might be a tough question to answer, but whether someone's new to the sport of fly fishing or they're just seeking out a new destination and trying, you know, uh, a fishery they haven't done before, a new species. What are some of the most common mistakes that anglers make when buying or sourcing or selecting a fly line? And, and Josh, I'll start with you. What are some of the, the pitfalls that people can avoid? <laughs> uh, that's a good question. There, uh, there's a few, and uh, I'm going to try to do our, our customer support team uh, service here by, by mentioning some of these. Um, it's mainly in relation to, to practice. Um, you know, I think practicing casting is, is absolutely vital, especially off the water, um, when it doesn't really matter quite as much. Uh, generally speaking, what I suggest is that if, if you're going to practice and you can't practice on water, it's better to buy a dedicated fly line for, for casting on land, just because it's going to get dirty a lot faster than, um, it would if you were using it on the water. Um, you know, there's a higher potential of ruining your fishing line if you're using that line to practice on dry land. Um, and then probably the, the most consumer feedback that we get from a failure standpoint, um, that actually relates to loops, um, not any discredit to our own is, uh, never ever cast a fly line without a leader. Um, even if you're practicing. So the, the one thing, the one sort of Achilles heel of welded loops is that if you ever cast a fly line without a leader, um, you know, the physics is such that at the end of the loop, that welded loop, at the end of your casting loop, that welded loop is going to break the sound barrier. It's traveling so fast that it could break the sound barrier. And, you know, you hear that sort of trademark crack and going from 700 plus miles per hour to zero in a millisecond essentially puts so much force on those welded loops that it blows it out. So if you're, if you're practicing, whether you're on dry land or whether you're on the water, always, always, always have a leader attached to your fly line. We, uh, we call that the Indiana Jones cast. (laughs) (laughs) Bruce. Well, I, I think something that I ran into a lot, I'm sure still happens is people buying the latest and greatest fly rod. And then they buy the latest and greatest fly line at somebody's recommendation, but they, they didn't take into consideration whether that's all going to work well for them. Because quite often the rod is pretty stiff and the line and their skill isn't up to the fact that they buy the right weight line. It's not going to be heavy enough. 
Um, people need to consider, in reality, most people should be buying slower rods than they buy. And, and then they can buy the right line and everything works well. But if you, if you go extra stiff, it makes everything hard to use. It works for experts. They know how to do it. But it's, I can do it, but it isn't even what I do. I've gone slower. I've gone, you know, it's just, it's, it's just easier. I don't fish as hard as I used to. And it's, um, you know, stout and fast will do a lot of things in really bad conditions in the right hands. But, you know, to be honest, most of us aren't those right hands. Well, guys, this has been great. So much good information. Um, before we wrap things up, is there anything that, that I have neglected to bring up or any closing thoughts that you guys have to kind of wrap things up? Josh, any, any closing thoughts? Um, just one other thing that, that came to mind um, as maybe another resource. This has been kind of waylaid um, since the advent of COVID, unfortunately. But we do have a program called BYOR, um, which means bring your own rod. And essentially what we do is we take a, a kit of um, every fly line taper that we have in a number of weights um, mounted on reels. And we take it to a fly shop and consumers can come and try you know, all kinds of different tapers on their fly rods. And it's a, an absolutely wonderful resource for dialing in your setup and ensuring that you have the proper fly line um, for your casting style or, or whatever fishing situation you might find yourself in. Um, so I would just say, you know, keep an eye out for that as uh, things hopefully start to loosen up. And, um, you know, don't be afraid to mention it to your local fly shop. The way we get these things out is by having fly shops request the kit or request us to come out with the kit and set this up. So if that's something you'd like to see and, you know, you want to try out a bunch of different tapers, um, don't be afraid to, to mention that to your fly shop. Great feedback. Get a casting lesson. There you go. <laughs> Get a good, find a good instructor. They're on the FFI web, website. <clears throat> Get a lesson. It makes a huge difference. It's, it's amazing how often everything comes back to that, to casting and practice. We can't emphasize it enough for sure. Well, guys, I can't tell you how great this has been. Thank you so much for sharing your knowledge and wisdom with us. I know that uh, our listeners are going to get a lot of amazing takeaways from this and can't tell you how much I appreciate it. And that is it for this episode of Waypoints, the podcast that is 100% dedicated to travel, adventure, and exploration. Be sure to visit yellowdogflyfishing.com to plan and research your next fishing trip, sign up for newsletters and new podcasts, and stay up to date on the latest travel news and developments join us for our next episode of waypoints and remember life is short and no one ever regretted a life of adventure this has been another episode of waypoints the podcast of fly fishing travel and adventure angling waypoints is produced by brian gregson with music provided by the steep canyon rangers visit yellowdogflyfishing.com for more destination profiles travel news, and expert advice, and be sure to join us for our next episode.